3: Traders have had some time to digest the possibility of uh, tariffs by the U.S. on steel and aluminum imports. The results inconclusive and here to help us understand what's at stake, what we need to look for going forward and how widely this could uh, turn into a trade war as Caitlin Weber, government analyst uh, focusing on U.S. trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. Caitlin, help us, uh, where are we at this point with these tariffs? What has the response been like and uh, how severe are they?
0: well the response um after uh, president trump announced that he um is, intends to impose these 25% tariffs on imported steel and 10% tariffs on imported aluminum was really uh severe and dramatic um both from um you know us uh downstream um, consumers industries everything from automakers to um even even uh, beverage makers were really um negative in saying that these would um you know, increase their costs and, and and eventually increase costs for consumers. There was also a really negative reaction from trading partners who would likely be targeted by um, these these measures, saying that they were. Um, immediately preparing some sort of retaliation and response. Um, but at this point, you know, we really need to look for the details in what the tariffs will actually look like. Uh, Trump yesterday, or yesterday was very very dramatic, but also vague. We need to see if there are going to be any countries excluded. You know, is he going to give any indication of how long these are going to apply? And, and is there going to be some sort of process where companies or countries can apply for exemptions from the tariffs?
2: Caitlin, are trade wars as easily won as President Trump uh tweeted today?
0: Uh <laughs> uh no, I, I would not say so. I mean there's certainly winners and losers. But trade in the 21st century is not a zero-sum game. Uh, so, yeah, you know, you could certainly see the U.S. steel and aluminum producers being winners from this sort of action. But losers would, you know, be all of those U.S. industries that are importing those products and then ultimately consumers. And then that doesn't even, you know, speak to the U.S. exporters that aren't even sort of part of this fight, you know, U.S. exporters and agriculture, um, you know, motorcycles bourbon that could be targeted in other countries because of this. So it, you know, trade is, is, you know, it's really not a zero sum game. It's, it's really not clear that it can be easily won, as uh, Trump um, seemed to portray this morning.
3: You know, Caitlin, one thing I was struck by was how President Trump's proclamation goes against uh, decades of GOP policies. And, and indeed, a number of Republican Congress members have come out and, and been vocal in their opposition uh, to these tariffs. What recourse do they have?
0: Yeah, it was really jarring yesterday to see Trump's traditional allies in Congress come out very strongly against these tariffs, saying they're basically a giant tax on consumers. But you know, unlike the solar tariffs and the washing machine tariffs that came out in January, Congress really doesn't have much resource or, excuse me, recourse on this issue. I mean, they could hypothetically pass a law that would um, undo any tariffs, or even they could pass a law that would remove the president's authority um, to impose these, what are called Section 232 tariffs. But then, you know, those are going to be obviously vetoed by Trump, and they don't have the votes to override those vetoes, because many Democrats, support these tariffs, kind of ironically. So at this point, what they can really do is continue to complain and continue to, to lobby the president, um, not unlike sort of what they're doing at the same time on, on you know, gun, potential gun restrictions. But you know, they're, they're, their hands are kind of tied in terms of legislative solutions here.
3: Caitlin, uh, you know, you talk about uh, gun policies and we hear one thing out of President Trump and then we hear another thing after he speaks with the NRA or I'm just trying to understand who given that who's in charge here with the trade uh, discussion, who's writing this policy?
0: You know, I think that changes from day to day, and it seems like, you know, whoever maybe is in in the lead, um, you know, on one particular day is is the person who has the most influence, and it seems like maybe in the past couple weeks that weeks that person is Peter Navarro, um, who has getting promoted to be special assistant to president on trade, who's who's very critical of of China, um, very much uh, critical of free trade agreements, um, but we you know, we've seen so much flux in in Trump's trade agenda over the past year. Um, So I don't think that we're done seeing that those, that, that change, even in terms of these tariffs, which he said he's going to finalize as of next week, I think it's very likely that um, other parties in the White House, uh, like Gary Cohn, are going to appeal to him successfully to have some some limits here that would really narrow the impact of those once they're they're ultimately applied.
2: Uh, Caitlin, just about uh, 20 seconds, uh, any itty bitty movement on NAFTA renegotiations?
0: You know what? These steel and aluminum tariffs, if they do not exempt Canada and Mexico, would not be very helpful at all. There hasn't been much movement. There's actually uh, talks going on right now this, this week, and they've been completely overshadowed by this tariff talk. I think that they're going to wait and see what happens next week when these, when these steel and aluminum tariffs come out. And if those are very punitive and don't exclude NAFTA partners, we could see NAFTA talks really grind to a halt, I think.
2: Much appreciated. As always, Caitlin Weber is our government analyst for U.S. trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. And you can follow Caitlin Weber on Twitter at Caitlin Weber. Using social media in order to spread disinformation, it is a topic of the day, and uh, here to help us understand a little bit more about it is David Garrity. He is the chief executive of GVA Research, and he can be followed on Twitter at GVA Research. David, let's first uh, have you set out what do you believe to be the current problem, and what are some of the solutions?
4: I mean, the problem is, is that if we look at the United States of America, the social media company which we know, but Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, which is part of uh, Google, now known as Alphabet, uh, pretty much have all scaled up and have now gotten to a point where, according to some surveys, uh, 50% of respondents are using Facebook or other social media feeds as their primary news source. Okay. Now, as we understand that law binding organizations such as this network, uh, you know, there are regulatory requirements uh, that have to be met. And uh, from the standpoint, if there's political advertising, there has to be attribution. This has to be made known beforehand. And, you know, there's also a responsibility in some respects to make sure that there are verifiable facts that are being communicated. Uh, We certainly understand that if we look at organizations, perhaps such as Twitter, that at least 15%, if not more, of the accounts on Twitter, by some estimates, uh, are, are not backed by real individuals, that these are, in effect, what are called... Bots, And to the extent that we have bots that are being manipulated or being programmed in such a way as to take uh, news which is not factually supported, which is politically biased, without attribution, and communicating those across um, millions of people who are using Facebook and other social media, we lead to very, very successful disinformation. And disinformation in an election contest either leads people to have a skewed point of view, a divisive point of view, or just to check out and not vote and participate whatsoever. Serves to undermine, we might argue, the liberal democratic process and of our society, which has nurtured these companies. So the question is, do we need social media reform? I think the answer is yes.
3: Okay, so if, say, Twitter and Facebook were treated as news organizations— How much would that cut into their bottom line, and how would that transform their business model?
4: Well, I mean, they're making the argument that they're protected by the First Amendment. They're making the argument that they're protected by free speech of the commons, but as we note and you point out uh, they are supported by advertising sufficiently so this might arguably be seen as being more of a form of commercial free speech if they needed to adopt the standards of other news organizations certainly their costs of doing business would be going up but clearly given the scale that they have attained they have the resources to be able to sustain those overhead costs in order to be better participants in our liberal democratic system.
0: But
3: what are those costs?
4: Uh, The costs arguably would be from a staffing standpoint. We've already had indications from Facebook, uh, as well as also Google, that they would be putting people on their payroll uh, 20,000, I think, in the case of Facebook, in order to do a better job of policing the content that was coming across of their platform. Uh, we haven't yet seen evidence that those individuals have been hired. So we may be looking at something which is really lip service and that the dollars that are being provided by these companies are going more towards lobbying Congress to try to delay or postpone that day of inevitability.
2: David, the Federal Communications Commission is able to designate specific entities as public utilities. And I believe the telephone companies used to be designated, maybe still are designated in that way because of the reach at the time of at when there was no competition. Uh, and there's a format for that to take place. Is it possible that the FCC would be able to do that with these kinds of companies and that they would then have to be treated in a similar way.
4: It's entirely possible based upon historical precedent, precedent. but if we were to look at the current staffing of the Federal Communications Commission under Ajit Pai, uh, who certainly has seen fit to repeal net neutrality and certainly has been implicated in terms of taking uh, money not only from Sinclair Broadcasting with respect to the expansion of their efforts in terms of local radio, but also taking gifts outright from the National Rifle Association, or NRA. Uh, One might argue that we're not really with a good staffing to make that happen.
3: So uh, we had earlier on the show today, uh, we had Randall Rothenberg, the chief executive officer of the Interactive Advertising Bureau on the show. And he was saying that uh, that it would actually be beneficial to have some government regulation if they were looking for uh, perhaps a way to uh, certify. The voices on the web, or basically have basically uh, something like a fingerprint or an identifier uh, to where the source of the information is coming. Do you agree? And what would that look like?
4: No, I, I agree entirely, and, and I think you know having attribution in terms of political comments. I mean, whether this is necessarily political advertising or whether it's political messaging uh, would be important. I think the first thing that needs to be done is to try to establish you know reliable identities behind the various accounts that are out on social media, and from that standpoint, you know looking towards other liberal democracies in this case looking over towards asia south korea uh, they have very stringent requirements in terms of people using their identification their registered resident number uh, as a means before you can open up an account the same thing is true with respect to looking at other liberal democracies such as japan the question is is whether we here in the united states are so you know wedded to unbridled first amendment rights even for companies that have scaled to massive commercial success you know to basically put in place elements of responsibility and to encourage good corporate citizenship.
2: Well, in that context, what has been the response, if anything, from Apple, Microsoft, uh, Google? You could make the case that all of these companies depend on their financial well-being by having people sit down or stare at a screen and do things using the internet.
4: No, certainly one might argue. I mean, Google clearly with YouTube has a direct interest by maintaining a social media channel, which has been implicated in terms of disinformation. We look at Microsoft, we look at Apple. Yes, these are the technology platforms that serve to enable the delivery of these types of services. You know, does that perhaps put them in too much of a remove? Um, Clearly, you know, we have instances here where, you know, Microsoft has been subject to sanction because of anti-competitive practices, both domestically as well as overseas in the past. But it hasn't extended necessarily to putting out disinformation one might argue that there really is a need first and foremost for the social media community uh, to perhaps do a better job of policing themselves or have others do it for them perhaps in this regard we might have others in the broader technology community here in the u.s also encourage this type of appropriate and collaborative behavior
3: well, uh, we will look out for that, and I'm sure this is a conversation that will be continuing uh, for the months to come. David Garrity, thank you so much for your perspective on this and for uh, filling us in on where we are here uh, today on this, Chief Executive Officer of GVA Research.
5: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's teamwork.
2: Are you ready for the six-second ad? Well, Randall Rothenberg, the chief executive of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, is here to tell us more about this. Randall, it's a pleasure to have you here in our 1130 studios. Um, So tell us about the six-second ad, the lack of attention that... Consumers seem to be able to uh, not be able to pay attention for more than six seconds. And what this means for uh, advertising, uh, both from the marketer perspective, but also for the uh, platforms like
6: uh, Google and Facebook. Well, at the root of uh, the six-second ad is the fact that uh, digital video is becoming the experience platform for, um, for brands. Uh, more than any other form of uh, uh, platform. And it's been an ongoing adjustment to try to figure out what is the natural standard for digital video advertising. The six-second ad has been with us for about 10 years. Um, you know, Vine was the, uh, the pioneer of the six-second spot. And it's kind of been evolving into what you might even think of as a natural standard. Um, there's been a reasonable amount of research done on it. We've done research at IEB on it. And it seems to indicate that it's uh, pretty sticky with consumers, you know, whether it Goes forward uh, as a real standard or not? We'll, we'll just have to see.
3: What's the best distribution platform for these uh, videos, digital videos?
6: Oh, there's lots of them. I mean, obviously, YouTube is a very dominant uh, is it effective? platform. It's effective for many marketers, and it's not effective for others. It depends upon the category, depends upon the brand, depends upon the message, depends upon the creativity. Uh, so, I would say is less about the platform than it is about the amalgamation of all the uh, the factors. The
3: reason why I ask is because whenever I see uh, you can skip this ad in five seconds. I'm counting down the seconds before I can skip it. How do you how do you measure the efficacy?
6: Uh, well, you do it using both traditional means and non-traditional means. Traditional means is all the research that goes into um, awareness, uh, preference. But the non-traditional means, which is where digital's power actually is, is the ability to attribute uh, a, a post hoc action to it. I mean, Did people look at the the ad? Did people click? Did they buy? And that's really where the the movement is moving, to what we call direct brands. I mean, there are enormous numbers, thousands of companies that are now establishing themselves across every consumer-facing category using this form of online advertising. All
2: right. I want to mention a couple companies to you and get your thoughts. Warby Parker, Casper, Dollar Shave Club, BarkBox, Glossier... These are companies that you just described as being direct to the consumer brands.
6: Right. We just released a, uh, a massive year-long uh, study on what we call direct brands. And um, those are all representative of this, this direct brands phenomenon. And fundamentally, this is not about digital advertising. This is about a... Uh, uh, kind of an epochal shift in the way uh, industrial supply chains themselves are put together and managed for value. And our thesis, which we believe the the research proves, is that the uh, owned and operated high barrier to entry capital intensive supply chains that have dominated really since the late 19th century have been replaced, are being replaced by low barrier to entry, capital flexible, leased and rented supply chains. So the whole form of value creation in consumer facing in the consumer facing economy is shifting massively in this direction, which is what allows the Warby Parkers and the Caspers and thousands of other companies whose names you don't even know to come into existence.
3: One uh, barrier to entry that certainly isn't there are uh, many restrictions by the social media companies that end up being the distribution platforms for a lot of these advertisements. And and right now, Congress is calling for a lot more. uh, Some Congress members are calling for more regulation. Uh, What what do you think is the appropriate measure, especially as we hear more about Russian advertising on Facebook and other
6: media? Well, Russian bots are a, a serious issue. Bots themselves are a serious issue. But you also have to remember that bots are just a technology, there are bad bots, meaning uh, things that can be used for nefarious purposes because the digital marketing and media supply chain isn't well-policed uh, by some companies. And they're bots that can be used for good purposes as well to amplify a message. Basically, it's a, another form of automation. So um, the congressional um, legislation that's being bandied about, for example, the War, uh, Warner Klobuchar bill in the Senate, gets at some things, but it doesn't actually help uh, fix. The supply chain problems that are there, the Warner Klobuchar bill and most of the other legislation that you're seeing basically aims specifically at paid electioneering advertising. The election ads, vote for Trump, vote for Hillary that appear in formatted spaces and time slots doesn't really address uh, uh, the social media infiltration and supply chain infiltration beyond that.
3: Supply chain infiltration meaning?
6: So you've got, um, you've got, uh, 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 you have in the internet a very open-ended supply chain in which anyone, uh, almost anyone can plug and play. And uh, you don't have enough companies qualifying their suppliers downstream and their customers upstream. And you need in any other industry any other industry, the food industry, the textile industry, right. you have that supplier qualification taking place.
3: Randall Rothenberg, thank you so much. We'll have to have you back on a fascinating discussion. Randall Rothenberg, Chief Executive Officer of Interactive Advertising Bureau, which is based in New York. shares of U.S. automakers are falling yet again. General Motors, for example, is experiencing the biggest uh, four-day drop in its shares since at one point, since 2015. Uh, it's recouped a little bit of, of those losses. But here to help us understand what the impact of trade tensions could be on the auto industry is Jamie Butters, U.S. autos reporter for Bloomberg. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, the reaction in equity markets seems to be highly negative toward auto companies. Uh with uh the looming potential aluminum and steel tariffs. Can you walk us through uh just why people are so
7: negative? Well, sure. Uh hey, good morning. So, you know, steel and aluminum, steel traditionally, right, is what cars were made of. Uh we we rely less on steel now over time and partly by replacing it with uh other materials such as aluminum, uh which can be more expensive but are lighter and therefore, you know, better for fuel economy and another you know efficient uh, use of the vehicle but these are these are huge components and the you know and most of what the automakers Uh, buy for building vehicles in the U.S. is U.S. steel, but the nature of markets, if you're going to raise the use tariffs to raise the price of imported steel, the price of domestic steel is going to go up. So all the steel and all the aluminum that goes in the whatever 15 million vehicles a year that we make around here uh, is going to get more expensive.
2: Okay, Jamie, I mean, I understand the argument that, you know, the global nature of steel and so on, but, you know, if GM purchases 90% of the steel for U.S. production from U.S. suppliers, couldn't they then make the public argument that, gee, you know, we didn't impose tariffs in order to raise prices for our customers, we agreed or the president put forth these tariffs in order to save the 80,000 jobs that are in the steel industry?
7: Well, but but where is that going to get paid for? Is it going to be paid for out of GM's bottom line, or is it going to come out of the customer? But I'm saying, you, yeah, you, but
2: you're saying that this is like the, a global and, uh, a global purchasing agreement.
7: Well, it's no. Well, the point is that they're buying it locally, and the price they pay locally is going to go up, right? Because the the only thing keeping it down <laughs> is is this uh, you know, arguably underpriced foreign steel. Jamie, right?
3: yeah. Well, I I just want you to walk us through if there have been any estimates of just how much uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs could potentially increase either the cost of a car to make or the cost of a car to buy for the consumer.
7: Right. Uh, You know, there's a lot that we don't know because there will be exemptions and there will be, you know, how, how it actually gets implemented. But if you look at it just kind of broadly, it might not be that bad. Uh, so if you figure there's $800 worth of steel in the average vehicle, and of course, look, I mean, a range of the average, right? You can have a Toyota Yaris that's a tiny little, you know, Chevy Cruze that's a little thing or a great big, you know, Silverado or F-150. But on average, let's say there's $800 to $1,000 worth of steel and aluminum in a vehicle. You know, if it's a, what are we talking about, a 25% tariff, that might only be $200, $250 worth of extra taxes per vehicle, which on a 36-month lease, you know, works out to about $6 a month, you know, so maybe that's not so much. It's sort of, but I guess it, it raises the question, the bigger picture of, you know, what's, the role of government and the role of taxation. We just went through this process. You know, the president's been very proud to eliminate a lot of regulations that were there to maybe protect the air or protect consumers, and we want to get rid of those so the economy runs a little more smoothly. You say, well, hey, what's another six dollars for the you know fairly affluent people who can buy a new car or truck? Um, you know, it's not that that cost by itself is overwhelming, but uh, you add a little six dollar. Here, $6 there, those things can add up and create a much less efficient economy.
2: Jamie, what about the effect on automobiles that are made outside the United States and are imported?
7: That is a really interesting question. Um, And, you know, again, it's not all clear and sorted yet, but as it as it's been described, I mean, what we're, if you—if you figure we're going to tax steel when it comes into the country, that is kind of a disincentive to build vehicles here. You look at, it, say, Fiat Chrysler is in the process of moving the assembly of their heavy trucks from Mexico to Ohio, right? Or to I'm sorry, to Michigan, and um, so. If bringing it to Michigan is going to impose that, is going to make all that steel subject to the tariffs, it puts them at a disadvantage to the GM trucks that are still going to be made in Mexico. So he might, this move could actually give a little advantage to uh, Mexican made and Korean made vehicles. Maybe it's a disincentive for Hyundai to build cars in the southern U.S. instead of just importing them with, you know, fully subsidized steel <laughs> from Korea.
3: So uh, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of question marks here, Jamie. I mean, if they start to uh, if, if U.S. companies start to build more cars uh, overseas, that certainly would uh, be a change in a dynamic right now. But just where we are, can you just put this into perspective? Do the auto industry executives who you're speaking with and analysts think that the move has been overdone, given what we know so far?
7: Uh, the move by the by, White the, House shares. Is overdone or no, by the shares. No, with the shares, the response,
3: um, the, the deep negative response.
7: I no, I'm not hearing them. Say it's overdone. There may be. I mean, their their rhetoric is very high. The rhetoric is very hot within the industry. Some of some of the analysts are saying this is actually pretty manageable. You know, it's not ideal. It's not uh, what we want, but it's but it's manageable. And so maybe some of you know shares were down three four percent yesterday for most of the automakers. Maybe some of that will recover, especially if we start to see some exemptions made for you know critical you know sub, uh, significant supplies of steel or aluminum they may be able to mitigate it but they're very worried about the precedent that it sets right. and the risk of a of a trade war breaking out
2: We okay. gotta leave it there but thanks very much as always jamie butters excellent on the u.s automobile industry joining us from our bureau in detroit